0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends,
1: discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future.
0: This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review.
2: Welcome to Trumpet Hour. You are listening to KPCG Radio 101.3, broadcasting from Edmond, Oklahoma, this Friday, February 16th. I'm Philip Nice, and we have the team here, Parker Campbell, operating the mixer, microphones, and software. He gets everything ready to broadcast from our FM antenna located here in North Edmond. Uh, after Isaac Lorenz puts it all together and, and gets it ready uh, through the, uh, the magic pipes, we say, the software, Uh, So we appreciate their efforts. I, uh, again, am Philip Nice, your host, and I'm with our Philadelphia trumpet writers, Jeremiah Jacques, Mihailo Zekic, Richard Palmer, and Andrew Miller. And we're going to give you the news of the week, the week interview from four regions, from those four writers, followed by a roundtable discussion at the end. And we're going to start with the world's powder keg of a region, the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, what news from the Middle East this week?
3: Well... Ties in with what we had our roundtable discussion on not too long ago. On Saturday, Media reported uh, an ag- examination of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, headquarters in Gaza City. The Israeli military has made it to the now abandoned site and has been examining it. And they found a Hamas uh, intelligence center They un- underneath. They don't know exactly everything that was going on there. The computers are at least... At, as of the most accurate information are being looked over by the israeli defense forces but evidence suggests including from testimony from workers at that facility itself that there has been a hamas presence at the un headquarters in gaza since 2014 10 years ago uh somebody uh they, that worked there anonymously told the the wall street journal that everybody knew that it was there when The parking lot started sinking because of the tunnels, but we all didn't want didn't want to say the silent part out loud. So in case there's any doubt on how biased the U.N. is towards Israel and their uh, coverage of the war in their attacking Israel, I think that's a good show of it. And speaking of the United Nations on Wednesday to Sky News, Martin Griffiths, who is the United Nations relief chief, said and I quote, Hamas is not a terrorist group. This is the guy in charge of helping all those you know, poor people we see in Gaza, which some of them genuinely do need help. But when you're saying that Hamas is not a terror group, what does that tell you about, again, the institution's own biases? Moving away from uh, Gaza and Israel in the war there, Ali Akbar Salehi, who is the former head of Iran's nuclear agency, gave a... An interview Monday where he was asked if Iran has achieved the capacity to build a nuclear bomb and he quoted this is a, uh, a slightly edited version from Iran International quote we have crossed all the thresholds of nuclear science and technology here's an example imagine what a car needs it needs a, a chassis an engine a steering wheel a gearbox you're asking if we've made the gearbox I say yes have we made the engine yes but each one serves its own purpose end quote So this is basically him saying we have everything we need to make a nuclear bomb. We just haven't put it together yet. Uh, We keep getting these little snippets on how close Iran is getting to a bomb. They're admitting themselves, we have what we need. We just need to put it together. How long it'll take them to do that, who knows. But it's certainly a startling development to say the least.
2: Powder keg has been used to describe the Middle East. And uh, this this week in particular, all of your uh, updates are... uh explosive. I mean, Iran, not only having a nuclear bomb, but having a a nuclear program, they could have at some point, presumably purchased a single nuclear bomb or or even several. But the fact that they have a program for producing them for maintaining them, and that they're very close to being able to uh, produce their own domestically manufactured bomb is extremely significant.
3: Well, of course, it's all for civilian purposes, which is why the IRGC is the one building their reactors.
2: Right. I mean, that, that's kind of a farce, um, their claims of, of what their nuclear technology is for, in the same way that the United Nations is becoming such a farce. I mean, you connected the United Nations bias in Gaza to say something as egregious as Hamas not, is not a terror group. As you were saying that, I finally connected that with the United Nations bias in the General Assembly in New York, right? All the resolutions that they pass that are so strangely biased toward Israel. I read a draft of Mahilo's article for the next edition of The Trumpet, Trumpet.com slash subscribe. And he gets into that uh, topic on the United Nations. Again, that's trumpet.com slash subscribe. Mahilo, what's the main story that you want to bring us from the Middle East?
3: Well, our main story may seem a little bit like like old news, but I mean, that's only because most other parts of the world routinely don't have bombs going off on their borders. On Wednesday, there was a bit of an altercation between Israel and their other terrorist foe, or at least other major imminent terrorist foe, Hezbollah, in the north in Lebanon. Uh, at least 11 rockets were fired from Lebanon and hit uh, an Israeli Defense Forces base, which killed a soldier. The IDF responded in kind and struck what they called the sources of the fire, and then they carried out air uh, attacks with their jets over Lebanese territory. And, of course, it's also should be mentioned that civilians uh, died in the Hezbollah attack as well against Israel. And then just Thursday, there was a senior Hezbollah commander uh, that was killed by the IDF in Lebanon. This would be Ali Mohammed al-Debez, who was a member of hezbollah's elite radwan force and according to lebanese media he was actually their liaison between hezbollah and these palestinian terror groups like hamas and appar- and apparently not that long ago he had a another assassination attempt on him he's no small figure we are obviously seeing a lot more of these tit-for-tat exchanges between israel and hezbollah At this point, Hezbollah is more powerful than the Lebanese army itself. Everybody's worried that this is going to spiral out of control into another war. Israel says the condition for there not being a war is for Hezbollah to abide by UN resolutions and go 30 kilometers or 18 miles north of the border. They're not doing that. So a little bit more of the same, but it is escalating. And people are wondering, when is this escalation going to stop? When is everything going to fall apart? And we're actually going to see – Israel invade Lebanon or vice versa. We don't know the answer to that yet, but the fact that neither side is backing down certainly is not a sign that things are subsiding.
2: Hezbollah, of course, a a very powerful uh, terrorist organization right there on the uh, the northern border of Israel and also has a pretty good amount of political control in, in Lebanon, it seemed like it has seemed like Lebanon and, and Hezbollah specifically has been on the verge of joining in on the murderous attacks on Israel, on Israel, both soldiers and civilians, for some time. But it's almost like it's in suspended animation. Um, is that just it? Do you think that's just its strategy, or is something else kind of holding it back, or or is it just biding its time?
3: Well, our editor-in-chief has spoken about Hezbollah getting nervous about foreign intervention in this war, specifically Germany. Germany has certainly taken a very active push against Hezbollah, specifically not intervening in the conflict. There are some other considerations as well, especially considering how fractured and impoverished and absolutely unstable Lebanese society is. Hezbollah is the most powerful group in Lebanon, but by no means the only ones. The uh, Lebanese forces or LF, that they're a, um, a Catholic a militia. They're historically not friends with Hezbollah. There's, of course, the Lebanese army itself, which on paper is supposed to counter Hezbollah's power. If Israel were to invade, I couldn't say for certain which side a lot of these other armed groups would take. But everybody and their dog knows that everything that's going on in in Lebanon on the border right now is Hezbollah's fault. Everything that's going on with Lebanon's horrible economic situation about how there's been no justice brought in because of the 2020 Beirut blast, that's all Hezbollah's fault. Everybody's sick of them. And an Israeli invasion to remove Hezbollah would be a pretty good excuse for some local forces to start staging a revolution themselves and get rid of them. There's a lot of unknowns with this. Hezbollah obviously keeps a lot of what they know secret, but... Hezbollah, while they do have a lot of firepower, their hold on Lebanon itself is a lot more precarious than many people may think. And our editor-in-chief has put a focus on this particular instability in Lebanon. He said before that we can't expect to see a civil war coming into Lebanon at some point. All the pieces for that to play out are there. There just needs to be a catalyst to get the spark going. Israel deciding that Hezbollah is way bigger of a threat than Hamas. Look how much problems Hamas has given us. We need to start taking the war to the terrorists now. That could be a very, very big catalyst for this kind of thing. And the reason we expect ultimately a civil war to happen and Hezbollah to lose control or at least fundamentally change the way it governs Lebanon is because of a prophecy in Psalm 83. Uh, That prophecy discusses a lot of Middle Eastern groups coming together to blot out the name of Israel so it's no more in remembrance we know it's a prophecy because those particular peoples, and for that purpose, have never come together in either secular or biblical history. And specifically mentioned is the inhabitants of Tyre, or modern Lebanon. Gebel is another people, and they're mentioned from that territory. And it specifically said they'd align with Asher, the Assyrians, or the ancestors of modern Germany. Hezbollah, as I just mentioned, is not a friend of Germany right now. Germany's not a friend of Hezbollah. But... Hezbollah is on Germany's mind. Lebanon is on Germany's mind. And if something were to happen in there, it wouldn't be too hard to see Europe, Germany, these other outside powers getting involved and getting rid of Hezbollah once and for all, claiming Lebanon in some way or another for themselves. Or Hezbollah could come in with their tail between their legs and decide they want a new master aside from Iran. It's There's a lot of unknowns that could go a lot of different ways, but that's ultimately the trajectory we're watching to see. And this brewing crisis on the Israeli-Lebanon border is a pretty good excuse for it to happen. If our listeners would like to learn more, I recommend they read our editor-in-chief's booklet, The King of the South. That's The King of the South on thetrumpet.com. It covers Hezbollah, it covers Germany, it covers Israel, and a lot more. And it's the one-stop shop for understanding the
2: Middle East today. A lot of explosive potential energy there in Lebanon, just north of Israel. That's the Middle East this week, as monitored by Mihailo Zekic. And that was the slash subscribe that I mentioned earlier to get your free subscription, always free subscription to the print edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet, thetrumpet.com slash subscribe, as well as the slash library. That's where you can scroll down and find the King of the South that Mahilo mentioned there. And I'll also put in the show notes this article that he kind of touched on there from October 2020. The Beirut blast catalyst for biblical prophecy because one of the unique things about the trumpet is that the old news is more relevant and not less relevant. <laughs> most uh, most news organizations you're going to follow the the newest news is what you want um, and that's why we bring you the week in review, of course. But uh, with the trumpet, you'll find that the older certain articles get, the more interesting they get because they they become even more relevant. That's one of them. The Beirut Blast Catalyst for Biblical Prophecy. Jeremiah Jacques has been monitoring Asia this week, as every week, and we appreciate that. Jeremiah, give us a rundown of the top stories from that part of the world. Sure, yeah. Well,
0: first, Russian political activist Alexei Navalny died in prison today at age 47. Navalny was considered to be Vladimir Putin's number one critic. He was uh, sometimes called the man who Putin feared most. And that's because he he really came to prominence by exposing Putin and his mafia as the thieves and murderers that they are. Um, But the truth is, Putin had not really feared Navalny very much since probably early 2021. That's when he had Navalny imprisoned on some falsified charges. Um, And that was just after Putin had had Navalny poisoned. So Navalny had been behind bars for About three years in some very difficult penal colonies. The one he was held in at the time of his death was an Arctic colony in Russia's far north. Russian authorities are saying that a blood clot was the cause of his death. But whatever the exact cause was, it's clear that his blood, like the blood of many, many people in Russia and Ukraine, is on Putin's hands. And then another Russia story here, Russia plans to place a nuclear-powered satellite-killing weapon in orbit. That's according to media reports on Wednesday, based on U.S. intelligence sources. Not much is really known about the specifics of this Russian plan, but we do know that America is disproportionately dependent on satellites. The U.S. has more than 4,700 of them up in orbit. That's more than twice as many as the whole rest of the world combined. And we also know that Russia and China have been developing just a whole range of satellite slaying weapons in recent years. These include ground-based missiles and directed energy weapons, and also satellites that they've already placed up in orbit that can be steered around by operatives on the ground and that have um, mechanical arms that can you know, disable other nation satellites. So the Russians and the Chinese understand how dependent the US and particularly the US military is on satellites, and they're taking active steps to be able to exploit that dependency. Then another quick one here about Armenia and Azerbaijan, there have been serious clashes between these two nations for decades, really over, uh, mostly over an area called Nagorno-Karabakh, which both of them claim is their own. In 2020, those tensions came to a head with a war that killed thousands on each side and put Nagorno-Karabakh under Azerbaijan's control. And then there were big clashes again last September. Um, And then on Thursday... Armenia's leader said intelligence information indicates that Azerbaijan is now preparing for, quote, full-scale war with Armenia. A few soldiers have already been killed in recent days, and if this intelligence is accurate, the world could soon have another major conflict raging.
2: That number, 4,700 satellites that the United States has and how heavily dependent we are on, on that con- or those constellations – of satellites is something you mentioned in the the draft of your article. You've got a print article in the Trumpet uh, about this specific uh, technology, the satellite killing technology. And I call that reason number 2 this week to go to the trumpet.com/subscribe uh, and get your free subscription to the Trumpet. It is a free subscription. Sometimes we forget to emphasize that. It is free, will be free, always has been free since 1990, uh, just like the Plain Truth magazine under Herbert W Armstrong before that for however long it was, uh, 50 years, uh, that magazine was free and and millions of people received it. So get your subscription to the Philadelphia Trumpet at thetrumpet.com slash subscribe. What's more important as far as getting into depth on it than those stories you covered in the rundown?
0: Yeah, well, the big story is that risk signals for a clash with China are flashing red. That is according to a new analysis published in Foreign Policy. This piece is by Michael Beckley and Hal Brands, both well-regarded China analysts. And the picture that they paint in this analysis is deeply sobering. They, they really emphasize the way that under Chinese President Xi Jinping, China is amassing ships, planes, and missiles as part of the largest military buildup by any country in decades. Um, There's also quite a bit of attention called to China's stockpiling of fuel and food, and the way that it's trying to reduce the vulnerability of the Chinese economy to sanctions. Those are, you know, those are all steps that would be very logical for China to take if it were planning to wage war. And the authors also examine China's increasing aggression against the Philippines and Taiwan and Japan and emphasize just how belligerent the Chinese Communist Party is growing. We can also see um, that belligerence by looking at some of Xi Jinping's statements lately. He has told the Chinese people that they must prepare for quote worst case and extreme scenarios and be ready to withstand high winds, choppy waters, and even dangerous storms. End quote. So you know some some really explosive rhetoric there. He's telling his people to be ready for major war and. This is alarming, of course, to see China in its current state, uh, militarized and ready to use that military power. But this has all been a long time coming. In
4: December 2001, China joined the World Trade Organization. This event was arguably more important to global politics than even the September 11th attacks, as China's entry into the WTO allowed it to entrench itself at the center of many of the world's most critical supply chains – and become the world's largest trading and manufacturing
0: nation, Beijing took advantage of the vast wealth accruing to its coffers to spend much more money on its military. That was China analyst J.M. Carpenter there. Um, And he's showing that really it was the United States that empowered China to become the formidable military power that we see it as today just by inviting it into the World Trade Organization all the way back in 2001. And, of course, in the years since then, the Chinese have grown dramatically more capable militarily and dramatically more committed to using all of that power to push against the global order and end the era of U.S. dominance. And I'll just read a, uh, a quote here from the ending of this foreign policy piece. It says, A powerful but troubled China is heading in a bad direction. It will take all the strength and sobriety the United States and its friends can muster. To prevent a slide into war, so it's a sobering picture that's painted here, and it shows that serious conflict could be much closer than most of us would think.
2: And that's, I think, the main thing to understand: is is everything is so comfortable, it seems like things will just keep going on forever. Um, you you can't ignore the fact that the world's largest country by population is making these these types of preparations. And 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 not understand that the the way things are now is about to change. I mean, that's that's the least controversial thing I think I could say. And yet human nature, you know, we just we just kind of uh, want to stay comfortable and want to want to think that everything is going to keep going on the way it is. But it it just isn't.
0: Yes, very good point. And Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has called a lot of attention over the years to China's military buildup. And he's especially emphasized the way China is just dead set on using all of its growing military power to assert control specifically over the South China Sea. And he has shown how worrying such a takeover would be for global trade and global peace. He wrote an article in the Trumpets, July 2016 edition, all about that. It's called China is Steering the World Toward War. And he shows in that article how his understanding of the whole dynamic there with with China and the U.S. is founded on Bible prophecy. So if any listeners would like to better understand the big picture of China's militarization and what it means for the U.S. and the world, I would encourage them to uh, check out that
2: article. China is Steering the World Toward War. And that's available at thetrumpet.com. So that's the week in review for the Middle East from Mihailo Zekic. And that's the week in review for Asia from Jeremiah Jacques that you just heard there. Next up is Europe. Richard Palmer, give us your rundown of the top stories from Europe.
4: Well, right now, the Munich Security Conference is underway in Germany. This is a major security event. I think What caught my eye is they put out a survey questioning 12,000 people across G7 countries, as well as Brazil, India, China, and South Africa, and asked them about their top geopolitical concern. what, What piece of world news are you most concerned about? It's not the Ukraine war. It's not the war in Israel. It's migration immigration and the migrant uh, migrant crises. I think that's just really interesting to see that this is hitting a lot of people so hard around the world. I think it, you can really understand why this is something that it's not just you read about it in the newspaper, but can very directly affect you through yeah. rise crime or inflation or economic effects. So I thought that was, uh, that was an interesting result. Then uh, uh, we've got some more economic data this week, some very good and some very bad economic data for Germany. They're now the world's third largest economy after a recession in Japan that had them shrink behind. But then also the government cut its growth forecast for this year from 1.3% to 0.2%. And the economics minister said that Germany's economic situation is, and I quote, dramatically bad, uh, Things do have to tend to be pretty bad if when the person in charge of making things better says, well, it's dramatically bad.
2: No cheerleading from him. <laughs> Usually they, ha- no, they have a no, cheerleader absolutely. kind of I mean, role. It probably
4: helps that he's in a coalition government. So it's dramatically bad, but it's the other guy's fault rather right. than his fault. Uh, but I think it does show something about Germany's economy. Like you do have this bit of a dichotomy where fundamentally Germany is a major economic power. It's an exporting powerhouse. Uh, and it's got this incredible industry. There's a lot there that is very positive for them. But at the same time, they are in kind of a more of a short or maybe medium term economic crisis, where the way that they've had all of these productive factors organized is is not working for them at all right now. And this is, as we've talked about, is going to lead to some, some major political changes. So that, there's that economic news. And then I, I thought I'd give you some news from the UK as well. Just quickly, while I've got my bully pulpit, so there's been some local elections today which had some pretty remarkable results where these were won by a landslide for the Labour Party, for the main left-wing party. But actually, if they won these by a landslide, but they did so with votes totals that fell or stayed about the same, what actually happened was the Conservative votes, their main right-wing rivals, absolutely collapsed. I think for one result, it was somewhere in the 30,000s down to like 8,000. Wow. You know, just the people on the right didn't come out. And I think you look at Britain's government and you understand why. Like we've got a conservative government that I think is, is pretty good at talking well about some things. But there's been you know, no real action. And everything that we've had coming from the government has, has been liberal. And I think... This speaks to this kind of deep state trend around the world, or you call it whatever you like, the intelligentsia, the establishment. But there is a consensus that is left wing that is dominating governments around the world. And it's not it's out of step with the with with voters. It's out of step with most people. But very few have the courage, the tenaciousness. It's very hard to fight that, and I think you're seeing that in the collapse of Britain's conservative government. That obviously ties into what you're seeing, I think, in the race in the in the United States as well. We've been forecasting the return of Donald Trump, but we talk about well, it's God using Donald Trump. Like this is, it's such an ingrained liberalism that's bringing the society down. It takes God using someone, and that's why. He is is able to be so successful. And an an example of this, in terms of this ingrained leftism, also from this week, there has been a lot of talk about the British Army. There were some pretty big exposes about the left wing infiltration of Britain's armed forces, where they have uh, just completely adopted this kind of homosexual agenda. There were posters in the Royal Navy. Encouraging people to to pay attention to LGBTQQIIAA+.
2: And you're issues. not joking. That's, no, no, that, that's that is literally, literally the acronym says.
4: from the Royal Navy poster. Uh, somebody said that the, the only time they ever saw a senior instructor kind of lose their cool was when somebody used the term rifleman. And then they got absolutely chewed out because that's a, a gendered term. Soldiers have to go to manual uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, mandatory diversity, equity, inclusion training. They're warned against micro ingressions. They're told to introduce themselves with their pronouns. Uh, so even, even this government area that you would have thought of all parts of the government would be most resistant to this kind of nonsense because they have a very practical job to do is being taken over by this.
2: And this is the British armed forces. I mean, you point out you pointed out earlier the divide between the the government governments plural and this kind of establishment, this kind of uniparty, as uh, Trumpet Daily presenter Stephen Fleury calls it, and uh, and others have called it, where there's this liberalized leadership in in all these different countries that's forcing it on the population that does not want it, and you have to ask like where where does this come from? How do these most radical elements become so dominant? How, how has this happened? Um, you mentioned the British military and uh, you've mentioned the German economy. Uh, your main story I see here from your notes involves both the, uh, the German economy uh, and what it's able to do and the German military.
4: That's right. I think we've seen a pretty big turnaround this week for Germany's military. It's a big week for this trend that we forecast of the rearming of Germany. So Germany is now finally spending 2% on its military, this 2% of its GDP. This is what uh, so incensed Donald Trump for many, many years, where NATO has this minimum. Everyone is part of this defense alliance. is meant to spend at least 2% of their economy on their military. Germany hasn't done this for years. They spent years cutting it. We made a big deal about it, I think rightly so, when they stopped cutting and they start boosting their budget, and now they've finally hit 2%, and they've pledged that they want to raise this further. That They want to treat 2% as a, as a proper minimum. Uh, again, they, they've generally been slower on, on some of these promises than they've said they would be, so we'll have to see on that, but this makes them the biggest military spender on Europe. Like you look at what a 2%, Germany consistently spending 2% on their military, you, there's the potential there to outspend Russia. I think before Russia was kind of really involved in the Ukraine war, Germany spending 2% would be spending more than Russia was. I mean, Russia is now actively in, involved in a war. I don't think that's the case anymore. But you'll, I mean, look at how much what Russia is doing shakes the world. And you would have Germany spending more on their military than Russia. And this does, I mean, this is why a lot of European partners were not necessarily super keen on Germany spending 2% or pushing them even though they were meant to as part of NATO because this is a Germany that spends more on their military than France. And France gets a lot of its leadership of the European of European military policy because they're the biggest spender. They're like, OK, well, we spend more on this than everybody else. You, you, you should listen to us. You, this is Germany starting to become the one that calls the shots for all of Europe militarily. So that's an important change. You also had this week Rheinmetall opening a new munitions factory in Germany, and I thought what was interesting is this was attended by the German Chancellor and the uh, the Danish Prime Minister. So there's a European dimension to this. And he said we must move from manufacturing to mass production of armaments. That's from German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. And you are seeing a a massive change in the output of shells. As a result of this. So the United States pre the Ukraine war was making kind of tens of thousands of shells a year. I think the figure was around 70 or or 80,000. Europe was making much more than that. It's it's a bigger, bigger place. But you've got this one factory is meant to produce 200,000 shells per year. Europe uh, or Rheinmetall was producing less than 100,000 shells a year before the Ukraine war. They aim this year to make half a million. Shells And going back to this Munich Security Conference, one of the hot topics that people will be talking about that Olaf Schultz addressed just even a few minutes ago is nuclear weapons. The chief reporter for Build this week wrote an article called, Of Course Germany Needs Nuclear Weapons. Uh, the Economist had an article this week, Europe must hurry to defend itself against Russia and Donald Trump. You know They're boosting their military spending. They're boosting their ammunition production. This becomes the next big question. We've got Russia, as we heard about from, from Mr. Jacques, putting n- nuclear-powered missile or, or weapon systems in space. So Europe is thinking about, well, do we need our own nuclear missiles? And that discussion is becoming more and more heated. I think the chancellor indicated that he, he didn't really want German nuclear weapons today. But the fact that you know, German chancellors have avoided commenting on this for years, it is the hot-button issue uh, within, within Europe.
2: Ryan Mattel, obviously the, the massive manufacturer of munitions, ammo, we- weapons platforms. It's like it's the German Lockheed Martin. It's the German Raytheon, massive uh, and important military manufacturing group. And to have the chancellor speaking there just underlines the fact that, as you brought out uh, numerous times, that the German government uses its strong economy, its technological expertise and specifically its weapons manufacturing capability as foreign policy. So to have the chancellor there at the opening of a factory, just uh, of a weapons factory, just underlines that fact. And and now we've got the third biggest economy in the world spending its way to become the biggest military in Europe, exceeding France. And and, and you get the sense that they haven't even gotten started yet. Like what Germany has the potential to do it is I, I mean they're they're a great people in, in so many ways and and they can do great things, powerful things, things that affect other countries. It's been very quiet in Germany for most of our our lifetime, and you just begin to glimpse what Germany could do if it really wanted to. And it seems like, uh, especially with Russia breathing down its neck. It's getting more and more motivated. And that's not even to mention the fact that, that Germany has also tied in other parts of other European militaries to its military. So uh, definitely something to watch there coming out of Germany.
4: Yeah, I think that's an important point you make, just even about you know, Germany, like what they can do together with Europe. That was another aspect of the nuclear debate this year, where Christian Linder, the German finance minister yesterday, he called for France and Britain to extend their nuclear umbrella over all of Europe. So you'd kind of rather than Germany itself getting nuclear weapons, you create a kind of combined European nuclear umbrella and maybe Germany would pay some money towards that or, or something like that. But yeah, you can have some of these things happen without Germany having to do it themselves through this Europeanization. And I think your point as well about this is only just getting started. I mean, certainly you talked to you to Boris, Boris Pistorius, the German Defense Minister. He's very clear that he sees the two percent that they're spending right now is totally insufficient, and he wants a lot more. And yeah, I'm sure there are like I'm sure there are things they need to fix from years of neglect. There've been some people saying as well though that that's exaggerated. But I mean, we're going to see rising from the NATO minimum threshold. But we spent a bit of time on this story. This is something that we have covered a lot on our Trumpet website. In fact, it's something we cover so directly that it is one of our trends, Europe militarizing on that trend section on the top right, the kind of some of the core trends we're watching for today. And uh, if you click on that, we have an article that explains exactly why we're watching that, that gives you a rundown of European unity. But if you kind of scroll through that article and get towards about halfway through, it brings in, well, why the Bible prophecy? Why this was something that Herbert W. Armstrong said 1978, for example, the Europeans are far more disturbed about their safety and relying on the United States military power to protect them than Americans realize. Europeans want their own military power. They know that either a political union of Europe would produce a third major world power as strong as either the United States or the USSR, probably stronger, and then goes through a lot of Bible prophecies that you know revelation 13 that talks about this empire or a beast in biblical prophecy and people's response is that to that that empire as well who is likened to the beast who can make war with them like militarization is a signature characteristic of this european power and it's brought out in prophecy after prophecy so this is one of the most important things that we're watching for it to develop uh, and that article takes you through many of those prophecies
2: that's the Trumpet.com slash trends. I've I've said before, perhaps the most underrated part of the Trumpet.com. I've been pointing to different parts of the website here today, but the Trumpet.com slash trends and look for the trend on Europe militarizing. And remember, this is all happening, that special hundred billion military fund that we didn't even get to. Uh, the the discussion, as you say, of possible European, possible German nuclear weapons. All of this is happening with Chancellor Olaf Scholz, right? He is not a war hawk, you know. Modern emperor, you know. He's not even a Boris Pistorius. He's mild mannered German chancellor, if I can put it that way. And another thing that we're looking for is for the leadership of of Germany and and of Europe uh, to to fall to someone who does have ambition, who does have uh, the will to to wield. Uh, what it is that Germany and and Europe are building right now. So that is your Week in Review from Richard Palmer, a world worth of news just in Europe. Now we move on to Anglo-America and an update from Andrew Miller.
5: The United Kingdom actually entered an official recession this week after a steeper-than-expected fall in gross domestic product. A super PAC backing United States President Donald Trump reported that inflation is up, almost 18% since Biden took office 36 months ago. And House Republicans impeached Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the border crisis. That's actually the first impeachment of a cabinet official in almost 150 years.
2: Immigration. Uh, Mr. Palmer talked about how uh, at the Munich Security Conference, of all the, the problems that are boiling across the globe, uh, the one that was on everybody's lips was immigration internationally. Uh, and, and now we see it reaching crisis in the United States where we were apparently able to deal with, uh, I don't know how America has sustained the crisis that it's that it's been that has been rolling at the southern border for as long as it has. Uh, finally, some kind of move there to uh, hold someone responsible for what, what's happening there at the border. Um, And I think we've covered that on on the trump.com as well. I think you've written on that. Uh, What's your main story from Anglo-America?
5: Yeah, it's an interesting one because actually, according to opinion polls, immigration and inflation, the two things I just mentioned, are the things Americans are most concerned about on the political scene right now. Although there is a bigger political problem than immigration and inflation that the u.s should be concerned about and that is the illegitimate president who's causing the border crisis and the inflation our editor-in-chief mr gerald flurry has covered extensively in his book america under attack just all the -the behind-the-scenes scandals and spy traps that the obama administration went through to get joe biden installed in office and now this week we're actually getting um a really disturbing report on that some of that goes uh, even deeper than we've understood to date, where this is um, a report from uh, Matt Taibe and Michael Schellenberger. Our listeners are probably familiar with those names. They're the two investigative journalists working most closely with Elon Musk uh, on exposing the Twitter files. But they've actually had uh, multiple anonymous sources tell them That the United States intelligence community, primarily the Central Intelligence Agency and its former head, John Brennan, were using foreign intelligence agencies to spy on Trump advisors long before January 2016. So even before Trump won the 2016 election – him and his campaign. Uh, this report says that John Brennan had specifically identified 26 members of the Trump campaign uh, for illegal surveillance. And the reason we don't know more about this is uh, the U.S. – it was particularly working what's called the Five Eyes Intelligence Agencies. The Five Eyes Intelligence Agencies are our own the United States intelligence community, but also um, the uh, United Kingdom spy agencies, Canada spy agencies, Australia spy agencies, and New Zealand spy agencies uh, to survey uh, Donald Trump. And there's, there's an important reason – he'd do it that way our editor-in-chief's article treason in america and britain he points out another thing that happened six years ago where uh fox news senior judicial analyst andrew napolitano was temporarily kicked off the air in 2017 after he claimed that british intelligence officials spied on donald trump on behalf of president obama uh and um I actually looked up the Napolitano clip of him explaining why they're going to do that. So we can play that now.
1: The, the statutes authorize the president of the United States to order the surveillance of any person in the United States of America without suspicion, without probable cause and without a warrant, meaning he doesn't have to go to yeah. a court to do it. So he can order the NSA, which already has the digital version of our phone calls, to to transcribe the digital version into a transcript and give it to him. But if he does that, there's a record of the order. Right. So three intelligence sources have informed Fox News that President Obama went outside the chain of command. He didn't use the NSA. He didn't use the CIA. He didn't use the FBI. And he didn't use the Department of Justice. He used GCHQ. What the heck is GCHQ? That's the initials for the British spying agency. They have 24-7 access to the NSA database. So by simply having two people go to them saying, President Obama needs transcripts of conversations involving candidate Trump, conversations involving President-elect Trump, he's able to get it. And there's no American fingerprints on this.
5: Okay, so that clip you just heard from six years ago, and Napolitano does a really good job of explaining why Obama did this. As you heard him say, the National Security Agency in the United States um, basically partners with the big telephone companies and has digital records of every phone call that ever occurred. Uh, not many of the people working for the NSA are bored enough to listen to your telephone calls. Uh, But they're in a database someplace, and if the president wants to listen to what you said, uh, he can request that transcript and listen to what you said. The catch is if the president requests that transcript, there is a record of the request for Congress to subpoena. If instead of doing that, he has an intelligence agency in Britain and there's intelligence sharing between Britain and America due to the, the terrorist threats, George Bush helped set that up. Britain has, record, has access to the NSA's database, but Congress does not have congressional oversight to see what the British told Obama. So if we have the NSA do it, we have a congressional record. If you ask Britain to do it, uh, Obama can read it, uh, and Congress, you'll never know. The o- the only way you'd know is if these anonymous sources are talking to Andrew Napolitano, Matt Taibe, and Michael Schellenberg that that's what happened. And of course, there's people who dispute that's what happened. But I think uh, I think the extent of the corruptions in the Twitter files makes it very likely that Napolitano was right and unjustly kicked off the air that like Obama was working with British intelligence to spy on 26 members of the Trump campaign. And Congress cannot get the records because it was not the NSA who did the transcript.
2: I remember Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry talking about uh, GCHQ, Government Communication Headquarters in the UK and Barack Obama's connection to them, using them for that purpose back probably around that time. I mean, that's something that he pointed to. And as you said, the larger role of Barack Obama in, in the United States is covered in America Under Attack, as you mentioned. So it's been interesting to me that uh, since I've learned about the Five Eyes intelligence sharing agreement that it's the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. This Just another m- maybe subtle indication that there are brother countries who trust each other to some degree, they happen to be descendants of ancient Israel. Like we've talked about over and over that the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and some others, you can trace their ancestry back to ancient Israel. And uh, to me, that's just an interesting uh, example of that five eyes intelligence alliance. An interesting observation,
5: which, which also shows just the, the far-reaching... Um Influence of the Obama administration is because of these brotherly bonds between these five nations. Uh, he he has influence over the intelligence agencies of other Israelite nations. Uh, actually, uh, our editor in chief wrote an article all about three years ago, in, almost four years ago now, in 2020. T- titled Treason in American Britain, which I just mentioned, where he actually cites investigative journalist Andrew McCarthy's book, Ball of Collusion, that London was the nerve center for Russia Russiagate. That's a quote. Uh, and then goes through uh, in some detail about uh, Andrew Napolitano being kicked off Fox News for saying that um, British intelligence was involved in Russia Russiagate. So we're now getting – More confirmation from the Twitter Files people that is indeed the case, which really just highlights the title of that article, uh, Treason in America and Britain, and that like if you're – this Five Eyes sharing network was meant to protect us from Islamic terrorists primarily and other threats – uh, but if Obama's actually using that to rig elections here in the United States and install an illegitimate president who's causing inflation and a border crisis that so many Americans are concerned about, that really is bitter affliction on Israel. That's the phrase Mr. Flurry uses in his book, coming directly from the Second Kings fourteen verses twenty six through twenty eight about bitter affliction for Israel, which actually, as you just pointed out, isn't just. America, but um, it's treason in America and Britain and also maybe a
2: little bit in Canada, Australia and New Zealand as well. Yeah, these are brother nations, but their strength and their unity is fading fast. But you can read about some of the history or a lot of the history behind or between ancient Israel and the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and other descendants of Israel in the United States and Britain Prophecy. uh, You can get a lot more about what Andrew's talking about in America under attack, as well as that article, Treason in America and Britain. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Stay with us for our final segment of the hour, which is our panel discussion. We'll be right back. Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour here on KPCG 101.3 here in Edmond, Oklahoma, and everywhere online. Uh, you can read more about what we've been talking about so far in the show at thetrumpet.com. And you'll see some of these names, Richard Palmer, Milo Zekic, Jeremiah Jacques, and Andrew Miller in uh, and the bylines there. Uh, they keep up with these things throughout the week. And we're gonna have a panel discussion here at the end of the show. We mentioned earlier and the theme of this discussion is watch Jerusalem. It's a geo-strategically important city, even though it doesn't seem like it is. Things have been heating up there in Jerusalem, in Israel uh, for the past few months. And Mihailo, can you just give us an update on on what's going on in Jerusalem and and, and Israel right now?
3: Yes. Well, obviously the October 7th massacre happened. We can start there uh, with about roughly 1,200 Israelis killed, most of them civilians. Thankfully, the Israeli death toll hasn't gone up too much since then. There's obviously been, give or take, 300 more casualties since then, most of them uh, Israeli defense soldiers, but obviously there's a few hostages that have died in the meantime as well. With Hamas, of course, the health ministry says there's 30,000 people dead Right now, with the situation on the ground, Israel is rapidly getting more and more control. This obviously, just because soldiers are walking through a street doesn't mean that the neighborhood has been clear of terrorists or that everybody's on their side or that they couldn't get pushed back to the mob popped out. But for the most part, Gaza City, the capital, has fallen. Again, there's still pockets of resistance. But as I mentioned earlier, they've even gotten to the old UN headquarters now. Han Yunus, that uh, biggest city in the southern Gaza Strip that everybody was talking about not that long ago there's still fighting going on there but that front is rapidly getting consolidated the big place that israel is worried about right now and is trying to get control is rafa that's another city that that has been on people's radar for a while now it before the war it had about 250,000 people because of all the refugees that have streamed in there from the rest of gaza most statistics say at least a million probably more than that Rafah's is the border town in Egypt, and the big worry, especially from Egypt's side, is if Israel comes in, well, first off, are they going to start uh, getting mass civilian casualties, and B, are they all going to start streaming into Egypt? I actually just read this morning that Egypt's building s- their own border wall uh, to stop uh, their migration crisis. It's more of like, a, I guess, a, a fork, but it's right next to the uh, uh, the border that can accommodate over 100,000 people, and they're building that basically overnight, so they're pretty nervous Israel, for their part, saying they're they're coordinating with with Cairo, with the Egyptians on how to deal with this. They say they're going to invade. That hasn't happened yet. Obviously, it's not just Gaza where this fighting. We've mentioned Lebanon earlier. There's been clashes in the West Bank. Hamas's popularity is growing in the West Bank, and we're seeing the spill over into other areas like Yemen and some of these places. So. Israel, for its part, is consolidating its ground in Gaza, but the wider Middle East threatens to become a maelstrom of, of chaos of its own because of this.
2: And that's a good point there at the end, because, Richard Palmer, there are other places where there are displacements. There are other places where there's urban warfare. There are other places where there are tensions between religions and open conflict and killings and war. But we exhort listeners to watch Jerusalem specifically and Israel specifically, more so than some of those other conflict zones. Why is that?
4: Well, one thing we do here with The Trumpet is we bring a spiritual dimension to watching your news. And we really do try to emphasize, you know, understanding the spiritual dimension, understanding the Bible, understanding good and evil and even just basic biblical truths about the human mind and the way that it operates are absolutely essential to understanding world news. And if we're really going to get to the heart of what why, why watch Jerusalem, I mean, it really is at the heart of, and you could say it's the spiritual capital of the world. Uh, it's at the heart of the message in the Bible. We have a book. It's called The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem. The very first introduction to that book is called Why You Should Watch Jerusalem. But it's called the eternal has chosen Jerusalem. God has chosen Jerusalem for a specific purpose. But then you also have the Bible is very clear that there is an evil spirit realm. There is a real Satan, the devil who hates what God is doing. And so if God has chosen Jerusalem, then he hates Jerusalem. And the result is the fact that it is at the heart of all this world's conflict. So that booklet says, to this day, the city is at the heart of the world's thorniest political and diplomatic dilemma. It is a spot for devastating news caused by religious and political resentments, terrorist attacks, and other violence. It is a powder keg charged with nuclear potential. No other city is so fraught with international tension. Bible prophecy shows that events in this city will trigger a nuclear World War three. That alone is a vital reason to closely watch Jerusalem. God's eyes are fixed on Jerusalem and ours should be too. Jesus Christ himself instructs us to keep our eyes to this, on this city to observe the signs pointing to the climactic event of all human history, his second coming. So this is why there are so many profound news lessons to come from watching Jerusalem. And I think it's interesting. Like you look even at the news from this conflict this week and it teaches us deep spiritual lessons. Like one of the big pieces of news that we had this week was about UNRWA, the United Nations Re- uh, Refugee Agency. And we've had this going on for a while back where they were UNRWA members were caught actually being part of Hamas and participating in this attack. Uh, you might remember back in November, Palestinian apologists were saying, there are no tunnels in Gaza. Israel is making this up. Then they found footage of tunnels under the hospitals. Now they published footage of tunnels under UNRWA headquarters. And the defense is, oh, there's always tunnels in Gaza. Everyone knows that um, there's just tunnels everywhere. This is this is a complete coincidence. It's nonsense. Like the photographs show, Hamas's networking headquarters getting power and cables coming down from the UNWA facility into the tunnel. Like they are hand in glove with terrorists. I mean, what does the the United Nations is. Man's Last Best Hope for Peace. This was set up after World War II to prevent another Holocaust. And this organization that is Man's Last Best Hope for Peace is actually aiding and abetting terrorism and helping some of the most evil people on the planet massacre Jews. That is the lesson that we're on Earth today to get in, in many ways, that, that man without God, it just, it's not just a disappointing failure. It's abominably wrong. I mean, Mr. Flory, in his book, Jerusalem and Prophecy, called it a fundamental lesson that man has not learned for 6,000 years. He said the greatest need uh, is to understand God and to let him reveal our own sickness and heal it. I and mean, You watch Jerusalem and that points to your greatest need that without God. I mean, this is this is a United Nations international organization, but it's true for my life. Like if I'm trying to solve my problems, I'm going to be as flawed at doing that as the United Nations helping massacre, helping a pogrom against the Jew, Like, we just can't run this planet ourselves. And you see that watching Jerusalem like you do nowhere else. And then that that city has a vision of hope as well, though, about God then coming and filling that need and this whole world looking to him for what we cannot do ourselves.
2: That's a great point. The Eternal has chosen Jerusalem, uh, the title of a book uh, by Mr. Flurry, available at thetrumpet.com, free. But that city and what has happened there, what it represents... I mean, human beings came from that spot. <laughs> this this goes back to being a human being, not being a Christian or a Protestant or a Catholic or a Jew or an American. And Jerusalem connects to many, many uh, Bible prophecies, not just in the Middle East, not just with Israel, uh, with Anglo-America as well. Bible prophecy is connected to Jerusalem. Yeah, it is just amazing
5: watching this um, unfold. Uh, I've... <laughs> Uh, I've been around long enough to have seen uh, other pretty serious attacks on Israel. I remember back in 2006, it really looked like half of the city was going to fall to uh, the Palestinians. The violence got so bad. Although back in those days, uh, Israel could definitely count on much more support from the United States than than they're getting now. Joe Biden was just up this week, and he's strongly cautioning Benjamin Netanyahu against moving forward with an Israeli operation into Rafah without a credible plan to protect Palestinian civilians. And of course, the way Hamas uses human shields, such a plan would pretty much hamstring the entire operation. Uh, And Biden knows that. So, I mean, this is something that like Israel just can't operate... (laughs) with an American support under these type of conditions, which is a a very prophetic thing that we've pointed to numerous times before, probably most recently in uh, our executive editor, Mr. Stephen Flurry's article, Betraying Israel and its Hour of Need, which points to a prophecy in Isaiah 9 and verse 21 that says, Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim and Manasseh, together they'll be against Judah. So this is talking about like, Britain being against America, America being against Britain, and the only thing they agree on uh, is they're against Israel and the Middle East. And we kind of talked about that a little bit in the first half, about Obama using Britain to rig America's elections. And now we're seeing America making official declarations trying to stop Israel from protecting itself – well, you mentioned those five eyes nations, you could even have a sixth eye. I mean, you throw Israel in right, there as, yeah. as well, and but there's just no unity. Like these nations are just undermining each other at, at every turn, despite their intelligence sharing agreement.
2: So we find a history of America, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, these other countries tracing back to a common people, tracing back to ancient Israel, as mentioned in the United States and Britain prophecy, like we mentioned before, we we find People so hateful that they will not criticize terrorists raping and murdering people in the most women, in the most savage ways. We find we find the, the existence of the Jewish people in the first place <laughs> needs to be explained. What I'm saying is that we find facts in our world that need to be explained. Where does evil come from? Where do the Jewish people come from? Why are these, uh, these uh, English-speaking nations uh, united? Uh, have been uh, have been united in history and are now breaking apart Uh, where where do these things come from and what richard palmer mentioned to you there is there is an explanation and it really it's only logical to try to find that explanation and so we'd encourage you to do that with uh, some of the books and, and magazines and articles that we've pointed to here in the show that is all the time we've got we appreciate everybody we appreciate the panel Parker and Isaac, as I mentioned before. We appreciate you most of all, though. We want to hear your thoughts. Our email address is letters at the com. Thanks for listening to the weekend review. That's all the time we have. We look forward to being back with you next week on Trumpet Hour.